Good morning. How are we doing this morning? I'm Brian Legg. I'm one of the pastors on our lead pastor team here. So glad you guys could be here. I know Brandon already asked you this, but I'm going to ask you again because I was backstage and I didn't get to see your answer. So how many of you are ready for Christmas already? Both of you. Wow. You do know Christmas is in two weeks from today, right? How many have started their Christmas shopping at this point? Oh, wow. Like, you guys are blowing away first service. There was like three of them. I haven't done a lick of Christmas shopping yet. I figure Amazon delivers to my door in two days, so that gives me like 12 days from today before I have to order, right? Or at least 11, so it gets here on Christmas Eve. I'm really bad about procrastinating, so we'll see how it goes. Hopefully I'll get the things in that I need to get at that time. Well, we're continuing our Christmas series this morning, and it is called Come to Worship. And we're exploring over the next, or well, starting last week, we're exploring across the four weeks four different postures of worship that we should be taking. Last week, Dave kicked us off with Lift Your Hands, talking about our hands being lifted in a position of surrender, but also the position of victory in God that we experience with that. Next week, we're going to be talking about Pour Out Your Heart. Christmas Eve, we're talking about the idea of Bow Your Knees. And today, we're going to look at the posture of bring your gifts. I thought, what better topic as we come into the Christmas season than to talk about this idea of giving? We're all talking about giving around Christmas. We do a lot of that. But I think it's really important to remember as we walk through this series that this is about our posture and worship. It really is more about the attitude of our hearts. Why do we do the things we do? Or why not? Um, Dave last week talked about Lifting our hands being symbolic of the posture of our heart in worship. It's the fact that the outward action is much less important than the inward motivation. God wants us to surrender our hearts to him. He talked about worship for us should be happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there was this phrase that he used several times last week that stood out to me where he said, worship is not something we do. A worshiper is who we are. And giving is simply one way we worship. It's our offering of trust in God and our proclamation of our dependence upon God. So I look around the room. Some of you are already squirming a little bit because why in the world are we talking about giving? I mean, come on, really. Can't you, like, tell me how to make my marriage better or how to be a better parent to my kids? Or it's December. We could at least talk about the real reason for Christmas, couldn't we? But here's the reality. If messages on giving make you squirm, it's probably because you haven't surrendered to God in that area in your life. Because it's a difficult area. And the real truth is that all of us, at some level or another, struggle with this concept of giving. It is the one thing that is such a barrier between our relationship with Christ because we want control of that area of our lives. Our money, that's the foundation. That's the thing that allows us to do what we need to do. And we want to keep absolute control of that. But God says, no, surrender that to me and trust me in that. So my prayer for you today is that God will open your eyes to the truth of his nature in this area and that you would come to understand how trustworthy he truly is and how desperately you need to depend upon him when it comes to your money. So we're going to dive in this morning looking at the same passage that Dave kicked off with last week. In fact, it's the passage that kind of gives the overview of our series we're looking at looking at the Christmas story from the perspective of the wise men or the magi, is found in Matthew chapter 2. So starting at verse 1, it says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars arose, and we've come to worship him. So these men 
come from the east looking for Jesus, and they've come for the specific purpose of worshiping. That's, that's really the content of our series, what it's built around this month, is coming to worship, offering our praise and worship to God. And as you probably remember the story as it begins to unfold, I'm going to skip a few verses here, so I'll give you the quick um, synopsis of it. But King Herod says to the wise men, when you find Jesus, I want to go and worship him too, so come back and tell me where you found him so that I can go and worship. Well, you and I get to read the story from a 50,000-foot view, and we know that King Herod's lying. In reality, he just wants to kill Jesus because his kingdom is being threatened. And so he's looking for him so he can take him out. So we're going to pick up in verse 9 as the story continues. It says, After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. Now all we've really understood so far is that the wise men have come out of the east, they've traveled to Bethlehem, and they've come to worship. We don't have a whole lot of context of what that looks like. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because I want us to focus on some other things, but I want to give you a picture of what's happening. Scholars have really looked into this. How far did the wise men travel? Where did they come from? Exactly how did all this play out? Well, it's believed commonly that they traveled from an area that was known as Persia at the time, which is modern-day Iran, and they traveled to Bethlehem, which would be approximately 900 miles in a trip. Now, I grew up in West Virginia, just outside of Charleston, and from here to the place that I grew up is about 850 miles, roughly. If I'm traveling on my own, I can make it in about 12 and a half, maybe 13 hours. If I have my kids with me, even at this age, it's going to be at least 14 and a half, maybe 15 by the time we make all those potty breaks, you know. Now think about going at least another hour, 900 miles. That's the kind of trip. Well, that's driving. They didn't have Southwest back then. They weren't picking up a cheap flight. They weren't driving the family SUV. They were either walking or they were riding camels. This past year, Sherry and I had the opportunity to go to Israel together, which was really fun. And while we were there, we rode a camel. That was a great experience for the five minutes that we were on it. I would never in a million years ride a camel 900 miles. That would be crazy. You'd be seasick by the time you got there. I mean, it's just, I wouldn't do it. But these guys, it was so important to them. They traveled 900 miles either by foot or in a caravan by camel. Verse 10 keeps going. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Other versions of Scripture say it a little differently. One says that they were overjoyed. Another says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. But my personal favorite is how the message describes it. It says they could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at just the right time. The wise men were here to worship, and they were literally beside themselves with joy in the moment when they showed up at the house, when the star stopped and they realized where they were, they've made this huge journey to get there. They were so excited they could barely contain it. They were completely beside themselves. And it makes me wonder, when we come in to worship, are we filled with joy? Are you filled with joy when you come here on Sunday morning to worship with your church family? Are you filled with joy in the normal day-to-day activities that you go through, the way you live your life so that people can see that in you? Because worship is something, not something we do, but it's who we are, and it's in everything we do. So people should see our joy. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with this because I I probably should have been diagnosed with ADD as a kid. I I never was. You know, I just got the treatment that we're going to spank you and keep you going in the right direction, and it worked. But I get distracted easily. I come in on Sunday mornings and there's something that needs fixed or there's you know, something on my task list that needs to be done and I'm running and doing and, 
And, and I get on, kind of on mission. I'm focused, and people accuse me all the time to go, well, you didn't even say hi to me Sunday morning. I didn't even see you. I mean, I was running to fix the printer out there because it was broken and people couldn't check in and, you know, there were these things going on and I get, I get focused on other stuff and I forget. And it's hard for people to see the joy in our faces when we do that. Some of you, I see you come in on Sunday mornings and if you're overjoyed to come to worship, maybe you should tell your face. I mean, really, because it forgets. Because you're like me. You struggle with the same things. You get distracted. You're focused. You've been fighting with the kids to get here. You've had other things go wrong. Or maybe the car broke down in the way and you come in and you've got all these things in your mind. Sometimes we forget to be overjoyed in how we do life. We forget about the joy that we should be carrying because of all that God has done for us. We've come, when we come to worship, we should be overjoyed. We have so much to be joyful about. Look at how verse 11 continues. It says, the wise men entered the house and they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The response of the wise men in their worship was to give. They opened their treasure chest and they gave extravagant gifts. But not out of obligation or following some custom or some tradition. They gave out of their joy because they were worshipping the Messiah who would save them. And the gifts that they gave were significant. They opened up the best of what they have to give to Jesus. Now, there's all kinds of symbolism that goes with the gifts, and this has been studied from many different angles for years. And again, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time, but I'll just kind of give you a side note, and then you can research some more on your own. It's commonly believed that the gift of gold was to represent Jesus' kingship. And then the gift of frankincense, his priestly role, and the gift of myrrh was actually a burial spice that was used, and they think that it was a foreshadowing of his death that was to come. And if you step back at a kind of a 50,000-foot view and you look at that story and all the details that God has woven into that story to help us see it unfold and to see his plan from the very beginning for salvation for us, it's just mind-boggling. So I would encourage you to look into that some more at some point. But this morning, I want to stay focused on this posture of giving that the wise men bring and how we connect to that. Think about this. The wise men were overjoyed, and as an act of worship, they gave. As an act of worship, they gave. If you're following Christ, you should be overjoyed as well because of all that God has given to you, all that he has done for you. And I would suggest that we should take the same posture that the wise men have taken in giving back because we've had so much given to us. The wise men gave out of their extreme joy. And if you stop and think about it, it just makes sense. When you love something, when you're overjoyed about something, when you're excited about something, we give naturally out of our love for that thing. We're to state it very simply, just this, love gives. Take a look at that phrase, let that sink into your mind because you're going to hate it by the end of the day. I'm going to drive you nuts with this phrase. I'm going to say it over and over. When you go home tonight, you go to bed, you're going to re be repeating this in your dreams. Love gives, love gives. Just learn now, you're going to hate it. Love gives gives. It does, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's a natural thing. For some of you, it may be hard to think back this far, but I want you to think back when you were dating. Before you married that special someone, when you were trying to, to find the right person and, and you, you were trying to impress them and you were trying to do great things for them, you are trying to express your love, love gives, doesn't it? You would work an extra shift to make extra money to give a special gift. You would skip lunch to go buy flowers for that special somebody so that you could make sure you got them to them. 
You would go into debt sometimes to buy a special present for Christmas, maybe some kind of jewelry or, or whatever it was. Love gives. Almost every year at Christmas, Sherry and I have this tradition that we set a budget for our Christmas time. And we do it so that we don't overspend on Christmas. We set a budget for kids and friends and family and you know, whoever else we may be given to, and we're pretty strict to that. And every year, I find a way to go outside of that budget and buy something for my wife. She knows it's coming. She knows it's going to happen. I just, I'm going to do it. I figure it out. Sometimes I have to work an odd job to make a little extra money to do something on the side without her knowing. Some years, if I'm just being transparent and honest, I lie to her about what's coming in with the love offering that year because that's the Christmas bonus, you know. Well, this is how much we got, babe. You know, and then I can use that little bit of extra to spend on her. And you can ask any of the staff. I tell them, if my wife asks, this is what went home this week. I'm just being honest. Some of you do the same thing. Come on, be honest about it. You find ways to express your love because love gives. And for Sherry and I, you know, Christmas morning, we're opening gifts and we go through and it's, it, it happens the same way almost every year. She opens that gift and she gives me that look. It's like, you broke the rule. You outspent our budget. Thanks. And it's all worth it in that moment because she's felt the expression of my love. Love gives. It goes beyond what is reasonable. It goes beyond the budget. It goes beyond the things that are sensible because we want to express our love. And God's love is the same way. Think about the scripture that almost everybody knows, whether they go to church or not. John three sixteen. It says what? For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Not a material gift, not so much of his wealth, but life itself. He gave his son to die for you and I, to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could have right relationship with him. That redefines the term extravagant gift. God loved us so much that he gave his own life for us so that we could experience that love. We love God because he first loved us. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God demonstrated his love by giving. By coming to the world while we were still living in sin, while we were still separated from him, while we didn't have right relationship with him, and giving his life for us so he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins and restore that relationship. You know, I often hear people say things like this. I love God, but giving's hard for me. Or, what does my giving have to do with my love for God? Or maybe it goes like this. He has my heart. He doesn't need my money. You ever heard that one? Maybe you ever said that one? I have bills to pay. Christmas is coming. Or, I'm just having some struggles with my finances. Let me get them all together and I'll, I'll give later. I'll make sure it works when I get it all figured out. Well, I found something really interesting this past week. And, and you just need to know, I've said some of those things myself at times. I've felt some of those ways. I've gone through that. But I was reading this past week in Proverbs 3. And in fact, it's in the same passage that we pull the verse from for trusting in our name. Part of our identity is a church. Trusting, believing, acting. Each of those has a scripture that goes with them. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is with trusting, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. 
It's a scripture I know well. We've talked about it over and over and over. It's a part of who we are where we're constantly challenging each other as a church family to trust God in every area with all of our hearts. But if you continue in that same passage and you read a little further, there's some other interesting things that come out that I've never seen before. Keep reading with me. It says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So it's the same scripture passage going through. It says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Trust God. And this will prove to be a good thing for you. Okay, that makes sense. I, I get that. But then it goes on to say, honor the Lord with your wealth. Well, to honor means to worship, to adore, to praise, to give honor to someone. And keep in mind, this is in the context of what we just read in verse 5, where it says, trust in God beyond what you understand, beyond what seems rational to you, beyond what seems logical. Trust him completely. Surrender your entire heart to him. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Love gives. And it keeps going. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crop. Then your barns will overflow and your vats will brim over. Basically, you'll be blessed beyond measure. So what's that mean, and, and what are our first fruits? How does that all tie in? Well, this verse actually parallels a verse from the Old Testament at the very end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3, where God tells his people to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and that he will bless them so greatly they won't be able to contain it. He even goes on to tell them to test him in this. The only area in Scripture where God says test him has to do with our money, with our finances. He says, test me in this. You show up, you surrender to me, you give me your heart, you trust me in this area, and I will prove myself trustworthy to you. Give it a shot. He says, put your trust in me by tithing, by giving a tenth of your income off the top. That's what tithe means, 10%, a tenth. Before you pay the bills and do everything you want to do, before you invest in all the things that you think you need to invest in, and then see if I don't pour out my love on you in an extravagant way. See, in the Old Testament, first fruits were a literal picture. People would bring their first fruits. It would be the first portion of their, of their, um, their farm product. It would be the, the first portion or the best portion of their animals. It might be the best portion of their merchandise. It was whatever their currency was that they would use to trade and function. They would bring the first 10% of that, the 10th, into the storehouse, and they would give that to God, commit to him, surrender to him in that way. There's a lot of people who argue that tithing is just an Old Testament concept. It doesn't apply in the New Testament. Well, this is just me, but I would respectfully disagree. In fact, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 23. He criticizes the Pharisees talking about how they tithe the letter of the law down to the, the smallest of spices. I mean, the, the Pharisees were doing it so legalistically, they would literally bring in a tenth of every little spice that they would grow. And he's having this conversation with them, and he says, you tithe the letter of the law, but yet you miss the big idea. You miss the picture. It, your heart's not in it. You're missing justice. You're missing mercy. You don't get it. You don't get the heart aspect of it. But he goes on right there to talk about the tithe is important, but the condition of your heart is more important. The motivation behind it and why you do what you do is more important. And that's the piece that you've got to get. It's talk, the tithe is talked about again in Hebrews 7 where you read about the story of Abraham and Melchizedek that came from the Old Testament. And it's such a great picture of faith and trust and then God pouring out his blessing. Melchizedek was the priest. It was a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. And again, I'm not going to go into detail here, but I would tell you, go back and listen to Stivey's message from September. We were in our Body Life series. I think it was September 25th, if I'm not mistaken. But he did that whole story, kind of blew it out and, and showed you the different perspectives of it and talked about giving. 
within that story. It was a really good picture, this painting there of the tithe. But as we talk about this idea of tithing, the reality is, if anything, the New Testament raises the bar. It doesn't abolish the 10%. In fact, that's what Jesus said over and over. I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And almost every time, he raises the bar, raises our thinking and our awareness of what the law commands of us. And as we talk about giving in the New Testament, there's this idea of giving cheerfully, of giving generously, and of giving sacrificially. It's three pictures of how we should be giving. And it goes so far beyond the simple concept of a tithe or a tenth. But I want to camp out on this idea of a tithe for just a few moments because I want you to understand the implication and the purpose of it. Hear this. When we talk about tithing, this is not the church's way of begging you for money. I know a lot of you feel that way, but it's not. It's not the church's way of begging for money. It's not God saying he needs your money. He doesn't. He's God. He is your provider. Everything you have comes from him. Your ability to work and make money comes from him. He has provided everything that you have and everything that you've experienced. And it was absolutely no different for the nation of Israel when God was speaking to them and he's commanding them to bring the tithe into the storehouse. He even accuses them of robbing him because they're not doing it. He says, bring that, that tithe into the storehouse. He's challenging them to trust him with their whole heart. The same thing he says to you and I. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Surrender to his way. You want to know what somebody loves? Look at what they invest in. Look at what gets their time and their energy Look at what they write checks to or where they invest their finances. Look at what demands their attention and their life is wrapped around. Those are the things that they love. And there's a reason that throughout Scripture, money is talked about so much over and over because I fully believe it is the one barrier that separates our heart from God more than anything else because it's the hardest area for us to trust and put our faith into place. It is absolutely the hardest area for us to trust. God tells us to bring our tithes, to give back 10% of everything that we bring in, making a clear statement that we're trusting in his role as our provider instead of trusting in us. But here's the thing that we often miss. It's not about the money. It's really not. We talk about giving, we talk about giving of our finances especially, but it's not about the money. It's about your heart. It's about your motivation. It's about why you do what you do. It's about choosing to surrender and saying, God, you're in control and I'm going to follow your plan for my life instead of mine. I could tell you story after story about God's faithfulness in my own life when it comes to finances, but you're never going to understand until you experience it for you. That's just the reality. There's all kinds of things I could tell you about experiences I've had and things that I've walked through where, where God's changed my heart but they're just a story to you until you experience them. I'm sure you've had similar experiences where you just can't communicate how something went because the other person can't get it until they walk through it themselves. And I want to make a, a, a real specific um, explanation here. I, I want to make sure you get that when I'm talking about all of these scriptures and reading through this, and we talk about your barns overflowing and, and your vats you know, brimming over and all that stuff, this is not a way of saying, well, if you start tithing today... God will give you that new car or that new house or whatever it is that you've been wanting. 
That's not exactly how it works. God's not saying, I'm going to pour out every want that you think you want. What he's saying is, I'm going to meet every need that you have. I'm going to show you blessings that you can't begin to understand, and it's going to change our heart perspective. It's going to change the way we look at things. It's going to change the things that are important to us. Giving of our finances, giving of our wealth, again, I want to say is, I think, one of the most important postures of worship we can take because it is the one area that is so hard to surrender and is so hard to give back. But it's not the only posture of giving in worship. Dave talked to us last week about Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's, it's Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and he read it from the message, and it says this, and I want to read it again because it was so good. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Give your whole life. Give everything that you are, everything that you do, everything that you want to be, all your dreams, all your aspirations, everything about yourself, and give it to God. The greatest thing you can give to God as an act of worship is your life. The greatest thing you can give to God as an act of worship is your life. Give Him everything. Worship is not something we do. A worshiper is who we are. Giving an offering, even trusting God with a tithe, that's a great act of worship. And I would challenge you to trust God in that way. But don't miss the heart of it. Don't miss the motivation behind it. This past week, I was uh, just in my quiet time. I was reading through a devotional that I use fairly often. And I want to read this to you. It was something that just kind of grabbed me as I read through. It says this, Stay ever so close to me, and you will not deviate from the path that I've prepared for you. This is the most efficient way to stay on track. It's also the most enjoyable way. Men tend to multiply duties in their observance of religion. This practice enables them to give me money, time, and work, listen to this, without yielding up to me what I desire the most, their hearts. Rules can be observed mechanically. Once they become habitual, they can be followed with minimal effort and almost no thought. These habit-forming rules provide a false sense of security, lulling the soul into a comatose condition. What I search for in my children is an awakened soul that thrills to the joy of my presence. I created mankind to glorify me and to enjoy me forever. I provide the joy. Your part is to glorify me by living close to me. Now, you'll never convince me that I read that by coincidence this past week. It literally just grabbed me, kind of stopped me in my tracks because as I was talking about this idea of giving, I had this reality hit me that sometimes I just get in the rut. And sometimes I do things mechanically. See, tithing is not an issue for me. I've tithed since I was a kid. My parents instilled that in me. It was something they taught me when I was very young. So even in like junior high and high school, I would cut grass in the summertime and make money, and I always took the first 10% and gave it back to the church. It was just what we did. I was taught that way. So it has become easy for me. I, I've become accustomed to giving that way. But where God's dealing with my heart is going, are you still willing to trust me with your finances? Because I've been tithing so long now, I've learned to live on 90%. I don't always get everything I want. It's not always comfortable. Sometimes that's still difficult, but there are a lot of times where it's just 
the rut and the routine of doing that, of giving that first 10% and living off the rest, and we've built our budget around it. We expect it now. And it was like God was saying, but do you trust me enough to be sacrificial? Do you trust me enough to be generous above and beyond that? If I ask you to give to something where it's going to take 20 or 30 or 40% and it's going to blow your budget and you may not have enough for your bills at the end of the month, do you trust me then? Are you going to be faithful in that moment? Because this, again, is not about the money. It's about where do I put my trust? Where does my provision come from? Who am I depending upon? There are many times that I have to adjust my posture in worship and make the choice to surrender again and again and again and again. See, that's the journey with God. It's making the choice to surrender and say, you're in control, not me. I'm going to adjust my life to what your purposes are for me instead of doing things my way. Love gives. Finances, time, actions, love gives. Think about it. The wise men traveled 900 miles to see Jesus because they had heard all of these things about this coming Messiah and all that it meant for the world. And they traveled 900 miles to come and worship and they gave of themselves. They gave of their treasures. They gave of their time, their presence. And God gave to the wise men in that moment, the same as he gave to you and me. It's why we celebrate Christmas. It's why we celebrate the birth of Jesus because it literally has changed our lives by giving us right relationship with God. I wonder, what does your giving reflect about your love of God? What does your giving reflect about your love for God? Man, you guys come on up. Here's my challenge to you today as we close. My challenge is that you would take a posture of giving in your worship. Not just giving finances, although that's a big piece of it, but giving of you, giving your life, serving faithfully, whether it be here at TBA or outside of TBA. Plug into a ministry here and serve. If you haven't served before, plug into our kids' ministry. Do you know every week it takes 50 people to effectively run TBA kids in the back? Y'all drop your kids off and you come in here and enjoy, but there's 50 volunteers every week to make that happen between two services. And guess what? There's always holes and we always need a few more people to plug in and serve there. It's a beautiful place to serve. Plug in and serve. Serve in one of our, our uh, connection teams with greeters or ushers or cafe. Serve here around the property or the grounds. We're always needing something done. Plug in and serve in that way. Go down to Highland City and plug into the homework club and serve there. Sign up for a future trip to Honduras. Get involved in one of these teams and serve in some way. Serve as you go about your everyday life, whether you're at your kid's school or whether you're at work or whether you're just out in the community. Whatever it is you're doing, find a way to plug in and serve. Give your life. But I also want to challenge you to specifically give of your wealth, of your finances, to trust God in that area because, again, that's the part that's hard. I give my time easily. I give my time to a lot of different things. In fact, sometimes I give way too much of my time to where I become overwhelmed because I'm giving and giving and giving. But my money, well, now that's a different story. Do I trust God enough 
to give of my funds, and especially if he asks something of me that's difficult, something that's uncomfortable, something that's going to put me in a bad place. So I want to give you a specific challenge this morning. As you came in and you got your bulletin, inside you found an offering envelope today. You don't normally get that. It's not something we do very often. They're usually in front of the chairs and, and back at our offering boxes. But I want to challenge you this morning to give something financially. And what you give is between you and God and what he's laying on your heart. Maybe he's challenging you to tithe, to take that kind of step of trust, to write a check or to go out to the kiosk in the lobby and use your card and to say, I'm going to give the 10%. Even though it doesn't make any sense right now, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills the rest of the month if I do this. I don't know how I'm going to buy Christmas gifts that I want to buy or do the things that I want to do, but I'm going to trust God anyway because he's my provider. Maybe for you, you've never given anything and you just need to give something. God's challenging you to give in some way. I don't care if it's a dollar or a thousand dollars. Give something. Choose to have that posture of giving in your worship this morning. And remember, the money really is just a tool to help him get our heart. It's taking the posture of surrender to go, I'm trusting you more than I trust in me, and I'm trusting you more than I trust my bank account. So God, I'm surrendering that to you and depending upon you. Give from a heart that's overjoyed. Give because God has given so much to you. And give as an act of trust in our faithful provider. And see what blessings he pours out on you. Maybe you want to talk to somebody about what that means and what it looks like to give. I would encourage you to stop by Next Steps, talk to us. We've got resources we can send your way. We'd love to share our own stories with you, talk with you, pray with you. You can do that. You've got the offering envelopes you can give. And in case you don't know how we give here at TBA, I, I kind of ran through it a while ago, but we have offering boxes that sit in the back by each of our exit doors as you go out. And so you can drop that envelope in one of those boxes or just a check or however you want to do it. Or there's a kiosk out in the lobby. If you prefer to give with a card, you can slide your card and do it out there. It's really simple. We don't pass a plate very often here at TBA, and that's on purpose because we want it to be about the heart. I don't want you just to give out of guilt I don't want you just to give because you think somebody told you to give. I want you to give because you're surrendering your heart to God and you're following him in obedience. So there's your opportunity to do that, practical application for today. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. The band's going to play a couple songs, and I would challenge you simply to respond as God speaks to your heart and leads. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this morning, and thank you again that we constantly have the opportunity to give back to you. God, I thank you for all that you have given to us. God, the many ways that you have blessed us, the many ways that you've poured your love out upon us financially, with the, the gift of your son, with just the gift of life that you've given us. God, with, with the gift of this beautiful church family that we're able to do life together and walk together arm in arm and, and that we have support and love around us. God, there are so many different ways that you have poured out your blessings on us, blessings that we don't deserve. I pray that we would experience that joy and that we would be overjoyed to a point that we can't help but give back to you because of all that you've given to us. And so, God, this morning, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you to give our lives, all, of, all aspects of our lives, God, our time, our energy, our talents, our money. Help us to trust you as our provider and to depend upon you even when things may not be logical, even when things may not make sense to us. Help us to trust you. Speak to our hearts now. In your name we pray. Amen.